the sector is one of the last lines of corporate defense right now. Whereas in the past crises, they were really much more in the vanguard. And a lot of the systemic risks were emanating out of the banks, which is not the case right now. So, you know, famous last words, but we do think this time really is different. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you are an investment professional that touches the wider universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We're living in a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across the global credit markets. I am Christopher Snow, the moderator, and I am here with Jesse Rosenthal, our head of U.S. Financials. Hi, Jesse. Welcome. Hey, Chris. Before we head into details, we've heard from Citi, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America reporting this week. What are the banks projecting at the moment? Uncertainty, fear, calm? Yeah, so I'd say uncertainty, but with a very hefty dose of resiliency. Listening to the calls, just reading between the lines, I would say the tone is actually pretty calm, but you know, the banks can't have a more cavalier, we're fine attitude. It's kind of a walking PR nightmare. So, you know, management teams were very careful to lend the appropriate amount of gravitas to their commentary. The banks themselves are realistically in the same sort of unprecedented situation as everyone else. And so they're not going to have any greater clarity at this point in time, just due to the nature of the crisis we're dealing with. But you know, in the face of that uncertainty, I think the banks are very clearly projecting a position of strength and a position of resiliency that they can handle You know, however the next few weeks and months play out, even if they don't know what that looks like. I mean, that's interesting. There's lots to worry about with the banks, the provisions for loan losses, the yield curve, regulations. But obviously, we're looking at other segments of the economy and the world right now as being the key source of risk and systemic risk at the moment. You know, looking at the last several crises, the banks were you know, a serious contributor to the crises and or the ensuing fallout. You know, is this time really different? We, we do. We, we think it is different uh, for a couple of reasons. I, I think first and foremost, we, we are of the view that the post-crisis, or I guess there's we're in the middle of another crisis, so the post-global financial crisis, those reforms have largely worked. And whether it's the capitalization of the sector or liquidity or just the structural limitations on risk-taking that comes with the annual stress tests, that the banking sector has really entered this COVID-19 crisis in a very healthy position and in a very different position than the last time. I would also make the point that the the nature of this current crisis is different. It's different from the global financial crisis. It's different from anything we've ever really had. And to paraphrase Brian Moynihan, the head of Bank of America, this is really a public health crisis that's generating an economic one. And you know there is always the risk that that will morph or could morph into a financial crisis to boot. But I also think that that's why you've seen the Fed's support step up in such an extraordinary way, both in terms of velocity of the emergency lending measures and just the scope of the facilities that they've announced. And then you add on the unprecedented fiscal stimulus measures that came out of Congress. You know, The commercial lending programs alone as part of the CARES Act is larger than TARP. And so you kind of put all that together, you know, the the banks are definitely going to get hit by COVID-19. They are a pro-cyclical business. There's no way kind of around that. But we do still think the sector is one of the last lines of corporate defense right now. Whereas in the past crises, as you mentioned, they were really much more in the vanguard. And a lot of the systemic risks were emanating 
out of the banks, which is not the case right now. So, you know, famous last words, but we do think this time really is different. You mentioned that the banks are going to get hit and a key part of that is going to be obviously their exposures to the rest of the economy. So let's start with provisions. So there's a few moving parts. There's the deteriorating credit environment, and then there's the implementation of CECL, the shift to life of loan loss reserving. How do the big four navigate this? By boosting reserves and by taking provisions. So just kind of a quick word on CECL overall. I I think timing-wise, this has got to be close to the worst case scenario for CECL implementation. Because what CECL aims to do is to reduce bank provision pro-cyclicality. That doesn't really work under the CECL methodology when you have a cliff effect like this, when you get whipsawed from a very benign credit environment to potentially a deep recession in a matter of weeks. But the modeling is also a big problem here. So banks took these massive provisions in the first quarter, or at least massive compared to the last decade. The provisions were running probably three to five times what the normal quarterly run rate had been. But because of the way CECL works, so much of that is derived from modeling. And so the reserve setting that the banks took and would potentially take in coming quarters, it flows from default and loss-given default assumptions. Now, those assumptions themselves are going to flow from the broader macro variables and whatever the assumptions are there. Because not enough time has passed since we really kind of got into the crux of the COVID-19 crisis, not enough time has passed for the banks to observe actual deterioration in the portfolio. That modeling risk has uh, even greater weight because it's even more guesswork than, than usual. You know, the portfolio performance and the macro indicators that are on a lagging basis, all of that would support a benign environment that would be kind of a continuation of where we ended 2019 at. So we know that that will not be the case. We just don't know how bad it might actually be. And then kind of adding to the difficulty from the reserving perspective, both for the banks and then also for the outside investors and analysts, comparability is really challenging right now in trying to stack up the different bank reserves and trying to say, okay, who might have more conservative assumptions, who might be under-reserved relative to others. And that comparability is really limited right now. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that the banks have not really disclosed what those underlying macro assumptions might be. So between CECL, which was always going to drive an increase of reserves, and the deteriorating economic environment, which just piled on, the big banks boosted their loan loss reserves by about 60 to 80% from year in 2019. And I think realistically, it's highly likely they're not done yet. I think it's fair to expect another quarter or two of elevated provision expense that hits the P&L and flows to the bottom line. Okay. We'll dig into those provisions a a little bit later, but uh, I did want to focus on another idiosyncrasy from the quarter, and that was the C&I growth. That was a consistent theme. A couple questions from that. You've written on this topics, but maybe you could speak to our listeners about how are the banks positioned to deal with those revolver drawdowns uh, on those commitments? I really don't think liquidity is a problem here. I don't think liquidity was a problem before you had all these credit demands and facility draws or you know, afterwards with where we stand here. Like you said, we wrote about this, and I think a big component here is, again, those post-crisis reforms that flow into why we think this time is different. So the liquidity coverage requirements that came out of Dodd-Frank that the banks are subject to, those requirements already assume a meaningful level of drawdowns on funded commitments. 
Additionally, those liquidity coverage requirements also assume a meaningful outflow on the deposit side, and the experience in the first quarter of 2020 could not have been more different from that assumption. Deposits absolutely surged into the banking system, which only further bolstered liquidity. Some of that deposit inflow was definitely coming from the loans create deposits dynamic because we had borrowers that drew down on lines just to kind of have ready access to that cash and cut down on friction in terms of accessing that liquidity and generally parked that cash at the same bank. So that was certainly a dynamic, but if you just look at the dollar amounts of deposits that were flowing into the system relative to the dollar amount of commercial lending that was flowing out, the deposit inflows dwarfed the commercial lending increase. And there was a very clear flow to quality trend as you get investors and consumers and corporates de-risking portfolios and then driving that cash inflow into the banking system. Obviously, the facility draws, I think, were probably the biggest story this quarter or this past month from kind of how banks are at the epicenter or how banks play into this crisis. We saw that show up in the numbers. I think the large banks each funded around 50 to 75 billion in commercial loans during the quarter. Uh, That was roughly split between facility drawdowns and new commitments that the banks made to their customers. And we saw utilization rates on those facilities jump around 10 percentage points or so. But again, coming back to the strength of the sector and the deposit dynamic, in most cases, bank liquidity is actually higher now than it was at the end of 2019. And you also have the relaunch of the Fed QE, call it four or five, what have you, that's also having a positive effect in in terms of liquidity in the banking system. And then kind of looking forward on potential further capital calls on the banks, There's a good reason to expect less of a credit demand on the sector going forward. If you just look at the pace of the facility draws that the bank experienced, there's been a massive deceleration over the past couple of weeks of March, and that's extended into April. You had a couple of banks say that facility draws have actually been de minimis so far through the first uh, two and a half weeks of April. And the peak demand from that facility draw not surprisingly, but it came right before the Fed really geared up with its emergency facilities and right before Congress passed the CARES Act. So now that you have all these emergency lending programs, which are helping stabilize uh, various credit funding markets, and you have Congress injecting massive fiscal stimulus, you just have a lot more capital market funding alternatives to bank credit that has improved dramatically from the depths of mid-March, which is when we saw the peak demand. So, you know, long story short, banks liquidity is still in solid and strong shape. They still have plenty of liquidity to meet the demands of customers. And there's a reasonable expectation that customer demand is actually going to slack it off. Yeah, I think that's right, Jesse. We certainly saw a lot of issuance uh, once the Fed had done its work to sort of clean the accidents off the freeway. And you started to see capital markets reopen and and issuers had options in terms of how they were going to fund their upcoming needs and, and to think about emergency sources of capital. Shifting back again to you know where some of these risks are for the banks going forward, as you mentioned, they didn't have a lot of time to adapt in the quarter. They didn't have a lot of time to you know come up with new estimates or models as the great awakening of the COVID-19 crisis really started occurring in mid-March. You know, are the banks seeing more pressure on the commercial side or on the consumer side? I mean, neither realistically. And I think that's just down to the nature of the particular timeline we're dealing with here, which is quite frustrating and confounding, particularly from the analyst perspective. 
you know, we were never really going to see much pressure on the 1Q20 balance sheet, just given that mid-March great awakening that you mentioned and how that stacks up with quarter-end results. There's also this added aspect of the banks are very early in the reporting season, so we haven't even had a lot of time for them to give good color or, or talk about the performance that they're seeing, even intra-quarter. Just trying to think back and, and put this timeline in perspective, I personally started working from home the week of March 16th, which I think you did as well. I think kind of more broadly across the country, that was actually somewhat on the early side. That was before we started to see more rigorous uptake of these shelter in place and work from home policies. So I started March 16th. By the time we had bank earnings on April the 14th, we haven't even gone through a full billing cycle there. The fact that that 30-day allotment hasn't even elapsed is really what's undergirding the fact that you know everyone's kind of flying in the dark here and the data just hasn't been generated yet. Drilling into that consumer piece, your point on timing, I think, is showing up in the unemployment claims data. You know, you look at a state like Georgia, which started shelter-in-place policies in April, they're still seeing an escalation in claims, whereas states like New York and California, which had shelter-in-place policies a little bit earlier, you're seeing those levels crest to some degree. We've seen overall in the country, 20 million people have filed for initial claims over the last four weeks. You know, we are going to see dislocations in consumer credit, notwithstanding the $600 boost to benefits that the CARES Act uh, put in place. You know, is there any signal from the banks on where those pressure points are developing? No. And again, I think it comes down to the timing issues that you just pointed out, Chris. You know, banks know that there's going to be pressure, but there's simply not been enough time that's elapsed for them to actually see it yet. So I think right now it's really, on, especially on the consumer side, it's much more of a game of scenario analysis uh, than extrapolating off the actual experience. And I think realistically, the consumer credit pressure points are going to be largely the same as you would see in any sort of downturns. So starting first and foremost with the credit cards, which in fact, if you look at the reserve build that the banks took in the first quarter, roughly half of that was specifically just for the credit card portfolios. We also think auto is particularly vulnerable on the retail side right now, but compared to credit cards, the auto loan books at the banks are minuscule, really. Okay, let's turn to the yield curve. We've actually seen the curve steepen since the beginning of the year, but you might not know it from uh, the front end hugging close to zero and the 10-year just above 60 bips. You know, How do the banks see the net interest? margin environment? Well, you know, credit really dominated the conversation on the 1Q20 earnings calls, as it absolutely rightfully should. Most banks, I think, either pulled guidance outright or gave more directional forecasts on margins and, and net interest income. I mean, margins are clearly going to be pressured this year. And that's particularly true as you get higher yielding asset classes, like credit cards are probably going to be in a contractionary position going forward. And then the fact that you have the ongoing credit demand is going to be concentrated in the commercial space, which tends to be shorter duration and usually floating rate notes. So that's where the bank exposure on the short end of the curve comes back to bite them. I think on the funding side, deposit pricing is really a big wild card, deposit pricing and deposit flows. We do think banks are going to look to be a little bit more aggressive than usual here in repricing lower and managing the mix. I think a risk-off environment is probably a good sort of backdrop to try to flex and, and test out your pricing power. And that should help out. That should help offset some of those yield pressures on the left side of the balance sheet. And then there's also the growth component here, because you are seeing these commercial loans surge, you are seeing deposits, you know, flow pretty strongly into the system. So while the absolute rates are clearly a headwind, and margins are clearly going to contract, there is some partial offset just on the nominal dollars these banks are going to print just from the expanded balance sheets. 
Thanks, Jesse. We've obviously seen a lot of policy action over the last month as we've dealt with this crisis. The banks particularly have seen some relief, access to the discount window, relaxation of the Cecil timelines, and of course, the trillion-dollar bazooka from the Fed aimed at keeping markets across the asset classes functioning. You know, In some of these other pockets, we've seen governors raising the alarm that they need more money and more funds from the government. Have we seen anything from the banks and the management teams there saying that you know there needs to be more policy action or more fiscal response? Not really. I think there's only one bank that we listened to that even kind of indicated that they think that there's some more work to be done by the Fed. But even in that situation, I think it was much more kind of tailoring around the edges and targeting, you know, very specific parts of the funding markets rather than kind of the wholesale capital market support and the wholesale framework of the Fed's emergency lending facilities. I think everyone kind of, you know, to a bank supported the Fed actions and said, you know, they have very clearly helped. They have very clearly kind of stabilized the situation, whether it's tighter spreads in short-term funding markets, even if CP does remain elevated, or it's the narrower bid asks in treasuries, which were, you know, I think one of the more worrisome developments we saw when everything first started breaking. As you mentioned earlier, you had a massive investment grades the debt issuance splurge in March. I think these are all indicative that the Fed's actions are working there. And, and we didn't hear anything from the banks saying either that it's insufficient or that there are kind of major pockets of the market that they think requires additional relief. On the stimulus measure, you know, I don't think any bank is going to come out there and kind of lobby Congress in a way and say this was insufficient. But, you know, again, reading between the lines, I do think most management teams kind of hinted at uh, future policy responses on the fiscal side. So whether that's them expressing a wish or them expressing what they think needs to get done remains to be seen. But I think there is a kind of clear underlying expectation that Congress is not done yet. Through all this, the banks have kept up their dividends. Ostensibly, the read from this is good, right? Do you agree? I mean, right now, only Wells seems to be treating with, trading with some investor skepticism on the continued payouts at current levels. Yeah, you know, Point blank, yes, I think the read-through on the dividend is good. Wells is in an idiosyncratic situation that I don't think we really have the time to get into here. But the read-through is good because what it does is it reinforces what has been very public pronouncements about the strength of the banking system. And so maintaining those dividends, having public commitment to maintaining the dividend helps reinforce the market confidence. You know, I do think with bank dividends at this point, it's almost like a public policy problem rather than a bank capital preservation question. And that comes down to what we've seen over the past month, which is that the Fed and the management teams have very consistently, very loudly, and pretty explicitly held up the banking sector as the potential hero to this story. And that's in direct contrast to when they were clearly the arch villain back in 2008. And the banks are getting held up as playing a very crucial role in everything that the policymakers are doing to try to combat this crisis, from the disbursements of the stimulus funds to you know playing the financial intermediary in the various backup liquidity facilities that were launched by the central bank. So you know we're being told pretty much every single day that the banks have more than enough capital and liquidity to support the country's borrowing needs right now. If you cut the common dividend, especially with the banks still more than 100 basis points over regulatory capital requirements, cutting the common just sends the exact opposite message and it risks sparking a financial crisis that would just add fuel to what we're kind of dealing with right now. 
which is not to say that the common dividend will never be cut or never be suspended or that it can't happen. There is a very prescribed method for banks' ability to distribute capital through the dividends. All of that flows from the regulatory capital requirements and the post-global financial crisis reforms. So, you know, regulators have been out here urging, and, and I think the banks have publicly acknowledged this on their calls the last week, publicly urging the banks and the sector to dip into the capital buffers to support the flow of credit. Now, if they were to do that, that would be the point when you have these structural limitations on the common that start to kick in. It's very mechanical. It's very mathematical. I won't bore you with all the bank nitty gritty right now, but it's a very prescribed method for how much banks are able to distribute. Now, we could also see the banks cut the dividends even before they would trigger those automatic limitations. But in that scenario, I think we would expect any dividend cut moves to be very well telegraphed. And you know, similar to the decision on buybacks or the discount window, which was effectively a press release signed by every single GSIB, we would expect a dividend cut to be a, a very similar kind of very coordinated effort. I think if it's messaged appropriately, banks slashing their dividends at the same time would help really reduce the downside signaling risk that comes with cutting a dividend. And again, we think the regulators are going to be very, very keyed in on and influential in how the banks approach the dividend because of that signaling risk. And the downside risk of decimating confidence in the banking system after you've kind of put it on a pillar here, which could then spark a banking crisis where there isn't one. I mean, the market consensus is, I think, very clearly that the banks are in solid shape. And so an uncoordinated, poorly messaged dividend cut will immediately have people questioning that. And that's just a very, very easy way to destroy confidence that's already fragile to begin with and runs the risk of, again, just kind of sparking a financial crisis when there really isn't one. Right. So I think, Jesse, you've made the point is that the major money center banks are are fairly well positioned, at least at the onset of this crisis. But are there pockets that the management teams are particularly worried about? You know, we've seen credit and leverage build in certain segments, whether it's in sponsored equity deals or middle market lending. Are the banks exposed to this or do they share similar concerns? Yeah, I think right now, and again, not to harp on it, but the timing issue that you and I keep coming back to and the timeline issue means that they're just really not seeing performance pressure yet. I think from a concern perspective, it's really much more about pockets of industry concentration. So hotels, retail, casino, sort of the industries that are at ground zero for for the shutdown policies and the economic ramifications there, that's really much more the focus rather than you know specific pockets of the market. I think the, the areas of worry for the banks are quite frankly, the areas of worry for everybody else. So, you know, those industries that are most directly hit, maybe SMEs that don't have the same financial flexibility as large corporates, can't take advantage of all the liquidity sources the Fed has stood up, obviously unsecured consumer exposures, just given the jobless claims that you cited. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. Let's talk about the sort of positioning in terms of the market. Now, towards the end of the March, you and the team shifted positive on the bank preferreds. You know, that recommendation came as uh, we as a firm were legging in risk into the market. Do you see value at these levels? Yeah, we do. We still like the preferreds, obviously not as much as we did when we first got positive a few weeks ago because the market has just really popped and so your return prospects have dimmed. But we still see good value in the asset class, particularly I know it feels like six years ago, but you just go back six weeks ago and we were down on the market because valuation was so tight and you were seeing banks issue, you know, perpetual 
preferreds at 4%, um, again, six, seven weeks ago. So that was kind of the steady state market that we're coming off of. I think that there are two kind of main overarching factors and why we're still bullish even after this rally and why we still think there's value in the preferred market. Both of those factors are actually something we've already touched on. So one is just the fundamental strength of the sector that we do think positions it to manage through this crisis. And then two, and they're interrelated, but two, just the coverage buffer on the common dividend and then the signaling risk that would come with a suspension. And the preferred dividends don't get deferred until the common is basically cut to zero. So in order, you know, that fundamental strength in a vacuum would just support a move down the capital structure. That's reinforced by the fact you still have blown out quality spreads here. And then on the dividend side, the dividend calculus would support a high likelihood that the banks will keep paying the preferreds. And if you go back to where the market was trading probably four weeks ago or so, I think a lot of that initial price action to the downside involved uh, dividend deferral risk. And I, I do think that that's subsided a little bit. I think the market has kind of gotten a little bit more comfortable with the banking situation and where the capital situations are, where earnings might be, and the ability to continue servicing the preferreds. I also think it's useful to look back at history to the global financial crisis, where the large banks actually kept servicing the preferreds basically until it was too late. So by the time the preferred dividends were going to get deferred, you were getting converted to equity anyway. Obviously, we don't think that's the situation here. We don't see any equity capital raises necessary. But that historical experience, I think, is useful because what it says is that the banks are going to bend over backwards to avoid deferring the preferred dividend. And I think a large part of that, again, comes down to the negative signaling because you turn off the preferred dividend and there's a very high risk that you kind of spark a bank run there. And then the final point I would make on why we are positive on the preferreds at, at these valuations as we're, we're trying to keep a little perspective here and we're trying to look past this media crisis, even just into 2021. And I think it's fair to say that we are probably going to be living with low interest rates well past the point where we kind of reach peak COVID-19 impact. And so you, you think about an economy that's you know maybe still suffering from the overhangs of COVID-19, but a little bit on the upswing, potentially still at a zero lower bound on the short end, you know, 10 year, you know, it's hard to see how it gets even up to two, two and a half percent. But that entire backdrop is just very positive for a high yielding capital security like the bank preferreds. Well, thanks, Jesse. You know, I think figuring out what the steady state looks like in the you know past two, 2020 into 2021 is, is, is an exercise we're doing across the corporate landscape uh, and really at the, the beginning of the earnings season. Thank you, Jesse. I know that you have a busy week of regional bank earnings ahead, so I really appreciate the time that you took with us to share your thoughts on the banks today. And thank you, listeners. As always, uh, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com, or if you're not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit size disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complaint in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.